If you uh, haven't been around the last two weeks, um, this sermon really is a, is a continuation of those last two, and they would help you understand this sermon quite a bit. Two weeks ago, we preached a sermon titled, Burning and Not Burnt. Remember that? It was about the burning bush. Last week, we preached a sermon titled, One Fire. It was about trusting the man of fire and the lake of fire. In Daniel chapter three with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, while I was um, writing that sermon, I took a walk just to think and pray and cry out to God, help me. And uh, as I was walking, I kept thinking about this song. And when I thought about the refrain of this song, I started weeping and then I had a hard time even controlling my weeping. I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's not a Christian song. And, and you may find it offensive. But I changed, I changed the phrase, God damned, which is a biblical phrase, to gosh darned, okay? But God damned is a more biblically, theologically accurate phrase. Anyway, I asked Justin and the band if they would play it for the offertory. I, I just, I love Justin so much because he's just kind of willing to do just about anything. So anyway, as, as they sing this song, we will be taking the offering. You will make an offering. And now you know an offering is a sacrifice. You're sacrificing something you think that you created with your energy, with your work, part of your uh, life, your livelihood, something that you think you own. And so, Bride of Christ, as they sing this song, let's make an offering. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah. 
Cause she's so cold I bet she was born in an Arctic zone She's so cold, she's so cold, cold, cold And when I touch her, my hand just froze She's so cold, she's so gosh darn cold She's so cold, 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 she's so Jagger. And, and now let me ask you, did you find that offensive? <laughs> Steve didn't, but, but here's the deal. Steve's a dude, okay? And uh, I'm a dude too. I'm a guy. And it, it might be different if, if you're a, a woman. So let me ask you, you women, if you woke one night out of a sound sleep and, and you heard a voice, a man's voice, and, and the voice said, I'm the burning bush, I'm the burning fire, I'm the bleeding volcano. I'm so hot for you, I'm on fire for you, I'm so hot for you. Well, anyway. How would that make you, how would that make you, you feel? There you go. Whether or not it was bad news or good news would depend on whether or not you recognized the voice, right? I mean, if you didn't recognize the voice and you concluded that that voice came from an intruder, Oh my gosh, that would be absolutely terrifying. However, if you recognized the voice and suddenly you remembered that you were on your honeymoon and that was the voice of your bridegroom, well, gosh, that would be like entirely different, wouldn't it? You might even make an offering. Let's pray. Lord God, would you help us to hear the good news? Would you surrender your spirit up to us, Lord Jesus, that we might make an offering 
In your name we pray. Amen. No, Harry, no! Don't look at the light! I can't help it. It's so beautiful. Well, as you know, that's the third time that I played that clip from A Bug's Life, because it's kind of like our life. No, Harry, no, don't look into the light. I, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. You know, people that have had those near-death experiences, they talk about seeing this, uh, this light, and, and yet if they walk into the light, we're left with nothing but a bag of dust and ashes. Anyway, you know, worship in the Old Testament was... A lot like watching a bug zapper. When I was a kid, my, my father bought a bug zapper. It was so cool. We'd invite friends over, family. We'd all sit outside with iced tea on summer nights and just watch the bugs fly into the bug zapper. Big old moth would get stuck in there. Everybody would clap and cheer, you know. And, and this was the wild thing. It was just fascinating. The, the bugs would disappear and, and all that would be left of them was dust and ashes. Where did the bugs go? That's what I used to wonder. Well, anyway, worship in the Old Testament was like watching a bug zapper and the bug zapper was called the temple. And sometimes it seemed like the Jews were just gonna put like all of creation into that bug zapper. Things surrendered to the bug zapper were called sacrifices. It seems to be some sort of innate human impulse to sacrifice. In almost every culture throughout all of time, anthropologists and theologians really aren't sure why people sacrifice, but they must feel some kind of need to give something back to God, even if they don't know exactly what it is or, or why it is or how they should do it. And, and it appears that God likes it, at least some of the time. It is a uh, pleasing aroma in his nostrils, says Scripture. In Exodus and Leviticus, God basically gives Moses instructions for building a bug zapper. It's called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and the Israelites would take it with them in the wilderness on their wilderness journeys. In the inner chamber was the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that's mercy covering law. It's the glory of God's grace. It's the light of the world. But to approach the light, you had to like pass this uh, fire on an altar on which the Jews were commanded to make sacrifices for all sorts of occasions and all sorts of situations, all sorts of ways. There were burnt offerings, cereal offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, consecration offerings. No one seems to know how they all work, but we do know that they were all some form of life delivered up to God through fire. The worshiper would place his hand on the sacrifice, before the sacrifice, identifying somehow with the sacrifice. And then the sacrifice would make atonement for the worshiper. Now this is important. Um, atonement means at one we, we usually think it means something else, but it means at one So that where there were two, there is now one. 
Well, in Leviticus 9, they've built the bug zapper, laid the sacrifices on the altar, and, and fire just like miraculously shoots out from, from, from the Lord, I guess from the Holy of Holies, and consumes the sacrifices. At the command of the Lord, they were to keep this fire burning continually. It was or is or at least symbolizes eternal fire. That, that uh, miraculous fire that, that comes from God shows God's pleasure in the sacrifice. That fire is his passion for the sacrifice. So remember at the touch of the staff of the angel of, of the Lord in Judges 6, fire consumes Gideon's sacrifice. And then it appears that the angel ascends in that fire. In 1 Kings 18, it comes down and consumes Elijah's sacrifice. Remember that? <laughs> on, on Mount Car Carmel. And in 1 Chronicles 21, David makes an offering on Mount Zion. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the offering, and it's in that spot that uh, they uh, build the temple. The spot on Mount Moriah on which Abraham had almost sacrificed Isaac, his firstborn son, in in the fire, the temple was like a giant stone tabernacle. Uh, the temple was like the world's biggest bug zapper. Blood, smoke, fire, the constant bleeding of animals, the smell of burnt flesh. I, I wonder what it was like I mean, it sounds barbaric, doesn't it? Sounds horrifying. Oh, I wonder if it was like this. It seems that sometimes, and to some people, it felt like that. Isaiah 33, 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? Well, you know, that clip was from Mel Gibson's movie, Apocalypto. In the next scene, a Mayan priest stands before the altar and he cries out to the crowd saying this, Mighty Kukul Khan, that, that was the Mayan snake deity, but by the way. Mighty Kukul Khan, whose fury could scorch this earth to oblivion, let us appease you with this sacrifice to exalt you in your glory, to make our people prosper, to prepare for your return. And, and, and then the high priest and his guards, they lay a man on the altar. 
they'll take out his heart and place it on the coals. By sacrificing him, they attempt to appease Kukul Khan's lust for blood and pay for their prosperity. Well, that temple was a place of debt, death, and fear. Sometimes, and, and for some people, the temple in Jerusalem must have felt like that, especially if that person thought that Yahweh was like Kukul Khan, like a snake, like an intruder, like a thief or a robber or a murderer. I mean, sometimes it, it must have felt like that, but, but it wasn't like that. At least not in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, Solomon has just finished the temple and all of Israel has assembled for its dedication. As they bring the ark into the temple, we read the following. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep, so many oxen that they could not be counted or numbered then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. Now, to an Israelite, you gotta understand that an oxen was like a new Cadillac, right? Or a John Deere tractor. I mean, it was your ego, your pride. It was, it was your work, it was your, your livelihood, and they sacrificed so many oxen, so many sheep, they, they can't even keep count. I mean, it must have been like their right hand didn't even know what their left hand was doing. It was like they danced the offering. Now, I know it was just like that for you while we gave the offering, and when you go home, your wife will say, how much did you put in the plate, honey? You'll say, I don't know. I just started giving and giving. I, I lost track. It was, so, it was so fun. Second Chronicles 5 is like a, a stewardship orgy. And you know, you know in scripture, the good steward is not the cautious steward, but the steward who just gives all, invests all. Why? Because that he, he trusts. He trusts that his master is good and gracious. As they bring the ark into the temple, the musicians play and the choir sings this. For he is good and his steadfast love, his hasid, his mercy endures forever. And the house of the Lord was filled with the glory the glory of God, the glory cloud. Solomon then stands up, blesses the people, then dedicates the temple. Um, next verse. Chapter seven, verse one. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, if his... Steadfast love endures forever, and if his mercies never come to an end, well, they like are the end. And God is mercy everywhere and every, every when. Well, anyway, this glory cloud comes down and fills the temple, so the temple's full of glory. God is with them, okay? There is nothing required right now. There is nothing to, to pay for. God has already accepted their offering with consuming fire from heaven. Next verse. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. 
King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen. Yeah, and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts, the Levites also with instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. They have so many sacrifices, it says they just had to start burning them. In, in the courtyard there, there were so many. And then Solomon holds a barbecue, he holds a feast for seven days. Several years ago, I had my secretary do some research she called the Iowa beef processors, did some calculations. 22,000 bull oxen is 16.5 million pounds of steak. It's a lot of steak. 120,000 sheep is like 12 million pounds of mutton. And this is for people that live in conditions that have gotta be worse than like Tijuana, Mexico. And none of this sacrifice is required. It pays for nothing. It's like good for nothing. Just, just good. They just enjoy giving gifts to God. They sit around the giant bug sapper, sending their livelihood into the bug sapper, clapping and cheering, hallelujah. Now, some of it, like the peace offering, turned into a barbecue that they, they all ate together. But the burnt offering, the, the Ola, just went up and smoked to God. It would be as if we gathered here every Sunday and just drove our cars off a cliff, blew up our homes, and, and partied. Had a barbecue. But we don't do that, do we? Not anymore, right? for the sacrifices have stopped, right? Jesus died, so we don't have to, right? Jesus suffered, so we don't have to, right? Jesus presented himself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, so we don't have to. Right? <laughs> yeah, but, but we say stuff kind of like that, don't we? In Apocalypto, the main character, Jaguar Paw, is placed on the altar. He's placed on the altar, but he's saved from sacrifice when the burning hot sun is eclipsed by the moon. So the high priest cries out, Rejoice! Kukulkan has drunk his fill of blood. We have sated his thirst. Great God, show us that you are pleased and let your light return upon us. The serpent God drinks his fill of blood and is satisfied, and the sacrifices stop. Is our God 
just like the serpent god? You know, we say that Jesus died for our sins. And he certainly did. But is our God satisfied the same way that the serpent God is satisfied? You know, theologians will sometimes say something like this. God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. And sometimes we explain that as if God didn't love us. And so God decided to not love Jesus on the cross so that he could love us. Kind of like if I hated you, but then I tortured and killed my son in order to feel better about you. Kind of like I, I didn't love my son. On purpose, I didn't love my son in order that I, that I could love you. Kind of like God the Father is mean and bloodthirsty, wanting to take life, and God the Son is kind and gracious, wanting to, to give life. Kind of like God is two and not one, a taker and a giver. Kind of like the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was not love when Scripture says that it, in fact, was the very revelation of love. Now, we know that it was not love for Satan, the ancient serpent, the taker of life. But God is love. And, and, and never not God, the giver of life. God so loved the world that he gave. In this is love that, that, he, that he gave. We say, we say this, too. We say that Jesus paid for our, our sin. But, but what do we mean by that? I mean, is sin like an item that can be bought? What is sin? What's, what's our sin? Isn't sin taking Christ's life? Jesus said, I am the life. So anytime you refer to your life as your own life, you take his life because he is the life. In other words, sin is your pride, your ego that hangs on to life as if it was your own. Sin is taking Christ's life. So paying for sin, restitution, must be surrendering Christ's life that you thought was, 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 was your life. Paying for sin is surrendering Christ's life, but only he can truly surrender his life. In other words, you could never take his life unless he first surrendered his life. So when you surrender your life, it's actually his life, and he must somehow be doing the surrendering in you. Almost like a sacrifice within you. Check this out. Scripture says he was slain from the foundation of the world in, in, in the Revelation. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So from the beginning, God gave his life in Christ. And since the fall, we have taken his life in Christ. Faith is surrendering our life, which is actually Christ's life, which means faith is a gift. If you didn't follow all that, think about it this way. Maybe there's another way to, to think of it. Jesus clearly takes away the sins of the world or the sin of the world. But what is the sin of the world? 
Isn't it refusing to sacrifice? Refusing to lay your life down for a friend. It's another way to say it. Refuse. Oh gosh, love is sacrifice. Faith is sacrifice. Worship is sacrifice. Of course the serpent deity wants an end to sacrifice. Real sacrifice, think about it. Life is sacrifice. It's one cell serving, sacrificing for another cell. One member of my body sacrificing for the next member of my body. It's the constant flow of blood, uh, life throughout my body, the constant flow of, of energy. Even in this body of death, it's like a little bit of, of fire. Well, anyway, Scripture says in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Some say a better translation of that out of John chapter one is as follows. That which was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. So his sacrifice is the creation of like light and life in men, men, women, people of this world. Scripture says he was sacrificed from the foundation of the world. And scripture says he was sacrificed once and for all at the end of the ages. Perhaps his sacrifice is like life for all and in all, like his blood is uh, for all and, and to be in all. But until we meet him at the cross, receive his life, which is his blood, we're actually dead or, or trapped within death. See, maybe that's our problem here with the whole conversation. We hang on to life thinking that we're alive when in fact we're like already dead. Whatever the case, the serpent deity wants the end of sacrifice. For our God is sacrifice. Our God is love. Burning hot love. So, if the death of Christ on the cross was the end of sacrifice, it was also the beginning of sacrifice. What I mean by that is it was like an eternal sacrifice, invading this temporal reality, like eternal life invading this temporal death, like eternal love, eternal fire, eternal being, our eternal God invading this temporal hell. C.S. Lewis writes this, in self-giving, and isn't that sacrifice? In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal word also gives himself in sacrifice, and that not only on Calvary. From before the foundation of the world, he surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. And as the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son. From the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated, and by that abdication become the more truly self, to be thereupon yet the more abdicated, and so forever. This is not a heavenly law which we can escape by remaining earthly, nor an earthly law which we can escape by being saved. What is outside the system of self-giving is not earth, nor nature, nor ordinary life, but simply and solely holy hell. And then Lewis goes on to describe heaven as this great dance 
and writes, all pains and pleasures we have known on earth are early initiations into the movements of that dance. But the dance itself is strictly incomparable with the sufferings of this present time. As we draw nearer to its uncreated rhythm, pain and pleasure sink almost out of sight. There is joy in the dance, but it does not exist for the sake of joy. It does not even exist for the sake of good or of love. It is love, himself, and good, himself, and therefore, happy. And so, is our God like the serpent God? The serpent God seeks to take life, possess life, and therefore destroy life. But our God, our God seeks to give life, and life is love, and love is sacrifice. Love is fire. So Jesus didn't die so that we wouldn't die. Paul writes, if we are joined with him in a death like his, we will surely be joined with him in a resurrection like his. And it's when you lose your life, said Jesus, for my sake, lose your life, that's when you find it. Jesus didn't suffer, so we wouldn't suffer. Scripture says we share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus didn't love, so we wouldn't love, lay down our life for a friend. Jesus didn't sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed in order that we would want to sacrifice. Second Chronicles, when Solomon dedicated the temple, they didn't have to sacrifice. And you know, so only, only some of the sacrifices were like designated to take away sins. I mean, all of, kinds of them were just like gifts, offerings. They didn't have to sacrifice in Second Chronicles uh, chapter seven. They wanted to sacrifice. And so instead of payment, it felt like grace. Instead of death, it felt like, like life. Instead of fear, it, it felt like love. In fact, the bug zapper felt like a party like the burning door to an eternal party that would never stop. Well, when Israel began to lose faith and serve other gods like the serpent god, scripture says, at least in Isaiah, that they could no longer endure the burnings. But their punishment, check, check out their punishment, their, their punishment wasn't to make more sacrifice, their punishment was that God took away the sacrifice in the temple. They were exiled to Babylon, and there in exile, God made them long for worship in the temple. And it was there that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace. Remember, we preached on that uh, last week, that the fire is one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Patricia was just telling me, first letters of their names, they, they come together to, to mean one. Even in Hebrew, the fire was one. Uh, they uh, were cast into the fiery furnace uh, because they refused to worship an idol. Because they refused to worship an idol, they presented themselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord. In Romans 12, after Paul has spent Romans 1 through 11 trying to explain the atonement in Christ and then explaining that it is truly unexplainable, he writes this, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your logical, logikos, your spiritual worship. It only makes sense. 
Present yourself. Self is what gives you all your problems, isn't it? Present yourself. Self is what needs to be sacrificed. And somehow, Jesus helps us do it. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego presented themselves to the fire. And like like the burning bush, like like Moses, they, they burned but were not burnt. In fact, the same fire that burned the guards saved them. Perhaps they weren't burned by the fire for they were already on fire or like like filled with fire, that is, filled with faith. And I I bet that's because they saw the fourth man in the fire. Remember, the man of fire. I, I bet it's because they saw Jesus. You know, I have a few friends that have suffered uh, ritual abuse at the hands of people who worship the snake god, the serpent god, who you know is really not a god, he's the deceiver. About six years ago, one of them was on a mission trip to Africa where she witnessed a goat sacrificed in this fire. For her, it brought up all kinds of horrid, horrid memories. She was terrified of sacrifice, terrified of fire, and the fear made her want to, to hide in shame. Scripture says that Satan, the ancient serpent, keeps us in lifelong bondage through the fear of death. Check that out. He traps us in death with the fear of death. Well, anyway, when she got back, we prayed, and Jesus gave her a vision. I know that they're real because my wife will also get uh, the same vision and this time I even saw part of the vision. In the past, in the visions, Jesus had shown us that even things offered to Satan in in the fire belonged to him and and he had them. And he'd shown us that when victims are sacrificed, he's even sacrificed with them and, and for them but still my friend was just terrified of the fire and so we prayed and I had her picture that, that fire. And then to make a long story short, um, it took quite a while in prayer and, and, and I didn't know exactly what God was gonna do but she saw Jesus, she saw Jesus in the fire. He held out his hands and, and he showed my friend where she was hanging on to some shame, something that gave her shame. She handed him the shame in the fire and, and it was like consumed. She looked at her hands and, and they were clean. But then she said this, well, now I'm, now I'm just so angry. She was angry because she had been subjected to such evil and such shame and she felt vulnerable. She felt fragile. Five years ago, I really felt shamed and I really felt angry and so I remember when she said that, I said, I feel angry too. And then Susan said, I feel angry too. And still, Jesus was standing there in the vision, in the fire with his hands outstretched. And so I said, hey, let's, let's just hold hands and walk into the fire. And so we did, we held hands together And then in prayer, I said something like, Jesus, would you just baptize us in your fire? I waited a minute or two. They were both seeing the vision. And so I said to my friend, I said, well, what do you see? And she said, you're ugly. And I said, no, 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 in in the vision. And then, and then, She and Susan both said, well, it is in the vision. In the vision, you're like all charred and burned up and and really ugly. We all are ugly. We're all like burned up. And and, and then I remember Susan said, well, P, 
Peter, ask Jesus to blow on us. And so I did. And he did. And then my friend gasped in, in wonder. And, and, and uh, she saw, that actually all of us saw, this is what I saw. Three solid, indestructibly, indestructible, beautiful, bright white beings. I remember my friend gasp and then she said, I'm not fragile. I'm not fragile. And that's right. She's eternal. I am eternal. Believer, you're eternal. The true self is eternal and the false self is dust and ashes. Paul wrote this, it is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body, a fire body. God is spirit and God is fire, God is love. Whatever is resistant to love is burned by love. Whatever surrenders to love, receives love and gives love is, is, is eternal. Remember how I told you that after my dad died, actually several people had like these weird encounters with him. I don't know what he was doing running around before he went up to heaven or something. But anyway, uh, my wife had this vision of him in, in church one day and I, I told you, remember, uh, a couple weeks ago about how he appeared so young and so vital and his eyes were on fire. He was like on fire. My dad is a man on fire now, like Jesus. And here's his ashes. <laughs> his flesh was consumed by fire and he became fire. He'd already surrendered his heart to the fire when he was just 19 years old. He died with Christ and rose with Christ and the second death didn't hurt him. In fact, the death of his flesh just set him free. Well, whatever doesn't surrender to love is burned by love. And the thing that doesn't surrender to love is our flesh. It feels only its own pain, feels only its own pleasure. The thing that doesn't surrender to love is our ego our pride, our, our ego. The ego believes the lie that love is something I control, when in fact, love must control me. It believes that love is something I possess, when in fact, love must possess me. It believes that love is something I create, when in fact, love creates me. God is love, and I don't create love. Love creates me. Well, with my flesh, with my ego, with my pride, I hide my shame. My shame is like an empty space in my person, or my flesh, my body. My shame is like my knowledge of my own failure. My shame is my knowledge that I myself do not and really cannot love. I'm dead. We're trapped in death. And check this out, shame feels convicted 
by love. So it hides from love. Shame feels burned by love. Feels burned by love until it surrenders to love. And love burns, love burns for shame. That's amazing, but, but I think you'll see that, it, that it's true. Love burns for shame. It's fascinating. Love hates hidden shame, and yet love loves surrendered shame. It longs to fill shame with itself. I have four children, and I ask myself this, this week, when has my love just burned most brilliantly, most hot for my children? And immediately I thought of four different occasions. I thought of uh, moments for each one of them when, when he or she, through tears and in agony, made a sacrifice to me by surrendering shame, a uniquely shaped void of shame that I just long to fill with this burning love called grace. As a parent, you, you know those moments. Through tears, a child tells you that they think you love their brother more than them. In agony, one confesses her ag agreement with darkness. In tears, another tells you that she secretly despairs and has never told anyone. In huge sobs and pain, one confesses he's failed and doesn't know why you love him. In those moments, love burns and the sacrifice is consumed and the void is filled with grace, creating an eternal treasure of indestructible life. I have four children and I have a bride. For 34 years, my love has burned for that place on her body where she instinctively feels and therefore covers shame. It's that place that I long to fill. And it's in that place that God makes life. And the older I get, the more God teaches me to burn not only for a naked body, but a naked soul. Love longs to fill until the contours of empty shame become the contours of molten hot grace, until the empty shape of a person's shame becomes the eternal fullness of the divine substance. Like a bride made of pure spun gold standing on the edge of the lake of fire and the sea of glass. Well, anyway, as you know, the Jews returned from Babylon and rebuilt the temple around 500 BC. And then it was rebuilt again by Herod. And then sometime around 30 AD, the Messiah, the man on fire, suddenly came to his temple. Malachi had prophesied he would be like a refiner's fire. And check this out, he wouldn't end the offerings, he would purify the offerings by purifying the offerers. He entered his temple, chased out the merchants, the money changers. You see, the temple was not to be a place of debt, death, and fear, but grace life and love. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And he spoke of the temple of his body. 
And on the night that Jesus was delivered up in sacrifice, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, he took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink. The life is in the blood. And Luke records that right before he did that, he said something. He said, I have earnestly desired. Epithumia, epithumesa. Literally, in lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. In lust, I have lusted to commune with you. And now listen closely. Epithumia comes from thumos, which means heat. Thumos comes from thusia, which means sacrifice. Epithuo is to offer sacrifice, and epithumia is burning love, translated lust. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? <laughs> I'm so hot for you. I'm on fire for you. I'm so hot for you. I'm the burning bush. I'm the burning fire. I'm the bleeding volcano. With all creation, he sets the stage in order to sing you that song in the hope that you would sing it back to him because you want to. And you see, Bride of Christ, you can trust him because he's not an intruder. <laughs> he's your bridegroom. Jesus Christ and him crucified is God sacrificing everything for you in the hope that you would sacrifice everything for him. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all sacrificed for you. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, writes Paul. And it's true that Jesus felt forsaken as he bore our shame upon the cross, but the Father was with him, burning with love for his son as he was trapped in your shame. But you see, it was all love. The serpent God never sacrifices what he loves, for he can't love. And so with him, it's never actually sacrifice. It's just murder. But our God, our God only sacrifices what he loves, for he is love, always love. And when he sacrifices, he creates life. Not desecration, creation. His sacrifice is the word spoken into the void that creates all things. And to create you in his image, God sacrificed Jesus and Jesus sacrificed his communion with his father as he bore your shame 
And check this out, Jesus wanted to be sacrificed for you and even in you because you are his temple. He wanted to be sacrificed for you and in you so you would want to surrender your shame, so you would want to surrender yourself, so you would want to sacrifice yourself to his father. And that's called faith. Well anyway, as Jesus lay in the tomb, and check this out, at communion, you like place them in the tomb that is you, right? As Jesus lay in the tomb, the fire fell, or perhaps it burst forth from his body. This is a picture of the Shroud of Turin. Now, I don't know whether this is actually Jesus' shroud or not, but scientists say that it could have only been created by the most powerful burst of intense ultraviolet light. Scripture says that they found the shroud on Easter morning, but check this out. It doesn't mention anything about dust or, or ashes. I don't know why, but perhaps it's because Jesus was the first man fully on fire, devoid of ego and sin. So there were no ashes. Or maybe my flesh, maybe our flesh, maybe our sin is the ashes. And Christ Jesus is our life. Whatever the case, his body is the temple and his sacrifice is the burning door. So from one side of the door, it looks like death and fear, but from the other side of the door, it looks like grace, life, and love. What's on the other side of the door? In other words, where do all the bugs go? Where do all the bugs go? What's on the other side of the burning door? Well, read the apocalypse. That means revelation, by the way. Read Zechariah about the wall of fire around the eternal Jerusalem, which is a bride, which is also a temple, and God is her temple. I mean, she's like this holy uh, bug zapper moving through space and time with 12 burning doors, and on the inside is eternity. So anyway, what's on the other side of the burning door. What's on the other side of the burning door? Read the Revelation, chapter five. On the other side of the burning door is, is a goat. Put back together. Jesus is, is on the other side of the burning door. My dad. A, a new and eternal me. A new and eternal you. Read, read Revelation 5. Every creature in heaven and on earth, even bugs, I guess, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is within them, worshiping God before a lamb standing on the throne. An entire creation burning hot for him. And this was the plan for the fullness of time, writes Paul, to unite all things in him, making peace by the blood of his cross the blood that constantly flows from one member to the next in a communion of fire. And now I say this with a bit of fear and awe, but, but, but I, I, think, I think this is true. Our God is not satisfied when sacrifice stops. Our God is satisfied when sacrifice starts and never ends.
But then we don't, we don't call it sacrifice. <laughs> what do we call it? Life. Eternal life. Even ecstasy. When only one sacrifices, it looks like a cross. When two sacrifice, it looks like a marriage, even an erotic marriage. When all sacrifice, we're home. The kingdom of God consummated in ecstasy. It's on the other side of the burning door. And this is the burning door. Your heart can pass through the burning door right now. And in time, God will take care of your flesh. And so if you would, pray this prayer with me. You, you just repeat this silently in your heart after me. Lord God, in Jesus' name, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I see that you have sacrificed everything for me. And now, Lord God, in Jesus' name, I sacrifice everything to you. So come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup containing blood that is life, that is fire, and make an offering. Worship him in Jesus' name. Dark cups of wine, light cups of juice. Amen. Sanctify your temple. Fill us, Lord God, with your fire. Commission us, Lord God, as your bride, your people, moving through this world like a bug zapper. For Lord God, I think that's what we are, your bride. And the door is our testimony. It's a burning door spoken to people in darkness, people afraid, people hiding in shame as we tell them the Father's good. And so you can surrender your shame. You can walk through the burning door. For on the other side, well, on the other side is like 122,000 sheep, 20. 2,000 oxen, a goat that's been put back together. Jesus the Christ, a new and eternal you, an entire new creation on fire with the love of God. Lord God, may we believe the gospel and may we be your temple. We are your temple. In Jesus' name.
Amen. And so this is your logical worship, to present yourself as a living sacrifice. And now just in case anybody is confused in the least bit about this at all, that does not mean taking your life, okay? Because taking your own life is doing just the opposite of surrendering your life. It's seizing control. But presenting yourself as a living sacrifice is saying, Father, I'd like to do what you want me to do. That's what I want to do. And you say that because you know something. And that is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. You have a good and gracious Father. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. And if you came forward today, you prayed that prayer today, you came forward for the very first time, you need to know something about yourself. You're eternal. And the love of God will never stop. In Jesus' name, believe it. Amen.